We've been in a series going through the Gospel of John. Um, so if you have Bibles, um, you can grab those. You can turn to page 903 in one of those black hardcover Bibles if you're using that one. John chapter 17 is where we're going to be today. John chapter 17. In the uh, mid-1990s, there was a newspaper columnist from Detroit, and he turned on his TV one night. He was watching the show Nightline. I don't know if any of you watched the the TV show Nightline. And he recognized on TV the face of his college sociology professor. But in the 16 years um, since he had seen last seen his college sociology professor, a lot had changed. Um, The professor had been diagnosed with ALS, uh, which is also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. And he was actually on the show, Nightline, being interviewed about what it's like to slowly deteriorate and die from from that disease. So seeing him on TV prompted this columnist to pursue a reunion um, with his former professor. And he met with him, and then he met with him again, and he met with him again, over and over again, something like 14 weeks in a row, these two men met, and the columnist gleaned all the wisdom that he could from his former professor. Now, if this sounds familiar to you, it's because it probably is. The columnist is named Mitch Album. The professor was named Maury Schmidt. And the book that made this story famous is called Tuesdays with Maury. Anybody read Tuesdays with Maury? Got some folks that have read that. Uh, if you've read Tuesdays with Moore, you're in good company. Actually, we, we loved this book. As a nation, as a group of people, we loved this book. It actually topped the New York Times bestseller list for nonfiction books in the year 2000. Why do we love a book like that? Why do we love a book like Tuesdays with Moore? I think one of the main reasons is because it's an inside look into a series of really intimate conversations. It's an inside, behind-the-scenes look to a series of really intimate conversations. There's a a 78-year-old man on his deathbed, slowly deteriorating from what's a terrible, terrible disease, as I understand it. A teacher and his former student, the dynamics of that, having unfiltered, honest conversation about really important things in life, talking about life and death, talking about love and communication. And when we get to be a, a fly on the wall for a conversation like that, it allows us to see the depth of the heart of another person. It allows us to see something we don't normally see in our everyday, surface-level kind of conversation. We get to see the depth of the heart of another person. We get to see what that person's really about, what they care about, what matters to them in life. And it's for that reason that the text we're in today in John chapter 17 has been so meaningful to the life of the church for centuries. John chapter 17 is really an intimate conversation between Jesus and God the Father. Sometimes, if you're familiar with Jesus' life and the narrative of his life, he goes off by himself to pray. And he'll do that for long stretches of time. He'll go off, he'll seclude himself, he'll isolate himself, and he'll pray. But a few times, as is the case in John chapter 17, he prays aloud. And he prays within earshot of his disciples. Okay, why does he do that? He's got nothing to prove, especially to those who have seen him do all of these powerful miracles these last three years. So why does he do that? He does that because through his prayers, we get a glimpse of this deep and sincere relationship between these two persons of of the Godhead. So whether you're familiar with John chapter 17 or whether this is the first time you've ever read this, 
My prayer for us is that God would really give us ears to hear His Word, ears to hear His heart, too, as we look into Jesus' prayer from John chapter 17. So follow along with me as I read. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's not, it's not all that long. It's about 26 verses. So I'm going to read John chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours." All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled." But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world... So I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And this is God's word. Let me pray for us. Jesus, it's a gift that you don't just teach in lessons and lectures, but you teach us through your example and you teach us through your own prayer life, your own conversation with the Father. 
And in this, we see your heart for your people, your heart for the world. We see what's truly important and valuable to you. And I pray that it would become truly important and valuable to us. And I pray that through your word, through your prayer, Jesus, you would um, speak to each of us right where we're at today. Meet us right where we are. Open our eyes wider. Open our ears to see, to hear you, the one who has been sent by God into the world to save the world. Let me pray this in your name. Amen. So John chapter 17 uh, takes place in the shadow of the cross. Um, Jesus starts out by saying here that the hour has come, and at this point, it's almost literally the hour that has come. Right after this, Jesus is going to be betrayed and arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and go to his trial and then soon after be crucified. But before all that takes place, he finishes his last discourse, his last teaching to his disciples, and he lifts his eyes to heaven, to the Father from whom he has come, to the Father to whom he is about to return, and he opens his mouth in prayer. And from this prayer, really, we get incredible insight into three things. We get incredible insight into the plan of God. What what is God the Father and Jesus, what have they been up to? in all of this. We get to see a little bit of that in this text. We get insight into the people of God. Who are the people of God? How do you become part of the people of God? And we also get insight into the pleadings of God. So how does Jesus, who is God in the flesh, pray for, plead on behalf of of his people? We're going to talk about those three things today. So first, let's talk about the plan of God. As Jesus prays here, he gives this inside look into what he and the Father have been doing. Uh, Not just for these last three years, but really for a lot longer than that. And we have to remember that today, you know, you and I, we have the benefit of 2,000 years of hindsight. Like, it doesn't always stand out as news to us, but for the disciples, this was unfolding before their very eyes. This was truly good news. And this is always meant to renew our, our joy and our astonishment at the plan that God has been working since eternity past. So what kind of plan has the Father and the Son been accomplishing? Well, first, it's a rescue plan. It's a rescue plan. Jesus is sent into the world to save the world, to rescue, to give eternal life to all whom God has given him. Today is is Palm Sunday, as you've heard, as we've celebrated a little bit. And with Palm Sunday, um, we kick off the celebration of Holy Week. This week builds to Good Friday, Uh, and then to Easter Sunday, in which we celebrate the death and then the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And these are really the central, pivotal events of the Christian faith. There is no rescue for humanity apart from the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But what we can't miss here is also the significance of the incarnation of Jesus. That Jesus took on human flesh to dwell among us. The incarnation is so significant that even before he goes to the cross here, Jesus can say in verse 4 that it has been accomplished. He has accomplished, past tense, the work that God has given him to do. He can speak of the rescue of humanity as if it's already a done deal before he even goes to the cross. Why can he say that? He can say that because in his life, Jesus shows us the Father. He, as he says here, manifests the name of God. He makes visible the God that we would never otherwise be able to see or perceive. And in his life, 
Jesus accomplishes the perfection that we could not. And it's in his life that he embodies the truth and the love and the holiness of God the Father. So we really miss a lot about the the full scope of the mission of God if we skip past what he accomplished in his life. And so as Jesus prays here, he's talking a lot more about that, about what he's done. He even says it's been accomplished in his life. So it's a rescue plan. It's also an eternal plan. Two times in here, Jesus says that he's existed and that he's been loved by the Father before the foundation of the world, before the world even existed at all. And that means that Jesus is not just an extraordinary human being. It means, as we've seen throughout the Gospel of John, that Jesus is God. Jesus is divine. All these I am statements. If you've been with us in this series, Jesus makes all of these I am statements. And it's, it's him claiming to be God. He's claiming his divinity. He can say those things legitimately because he was there with the Father doing the work of creating everything else that exists. But it's not just this uh, plan from eternity past. It's also a plan for eternity future. And so Jesus can say here in verse 24, I desire that my followers be with me where I am going. In other words, that, that my people, my followers would be with me in heaven, experiencing the, the perfect fullness of relationship with the Father that I'm about to go and experience. So this is an eternal plan to redeem and to rescue, to reconcile, but also to reunite God's people to God for all of time, eternity future. And because it's an eternal plan, both eternity past and eternity future, that means that this plan is not a reaction. It means it's not a reaction. Even the parts of this plan that baffle us, and if you've never been baffled by that, I would invite you to be baffled a little bit by the eternal plan of God and why he does it this way. Jesus mentions here the betrayal of Judas. He says that even that is part of the plan. Even the betrayal of a good friend, one of his disciples, is part of the plan. That scripture might be fulfilled. That all these prophecies about the betrayal of Jesus, the scorn of humanity, the suffering of this perfect servant on behalf of God's people, all of that might be fulfilled in Jesus. But if you're the one that gets to write the eternal story, why do you write it in such a way that includes your own suffering? Why would you do that? And I don't know that I'll ever, I know I won't in this life, have the mind to understand the specifics of that. I would never have written the story that way, and you should be glad that I didn't write the story that way. Though we might not ever know the specifics, we can know the big picture reason because Jesus actually tells us. It's not just a rescue plan. It's not just an eternal plan. It's a glory plan. God's plan is a plan to display the glory of God. Did you hear how much Jesus used the word glory in this chapter? It's all over the place. And it's in these, you know, these intimate behind-the-scenes conversations that we reveal what we're really about, what we, what's really important to us. And what we see here, Jesus is all about the glory of God. He prays that the Father would glorify him, but he only prays that so that he can reflect that glory back to the Father. And Jesus says something else here that really should should give us pause. Verse 22. The glory that you, Father, have given me, 
I have given them. I have given my followers. In other words, Jesus gives glory to his people. Does that make you feel a little bit uncomfortable? I think it's meant to make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. It's a huge statement to say that Jesus, who is the eternal rescuer of humanity, has given you and me glory. The same kind of glory that he himself has received from the Father. But really, we have to see this. This is an often overlooked part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We have to see this. We have to see that we are made for this kind of glory. And we are given this kind of glory through the work of Jesus. I don't know where you find yourself this morning, where you are in life right now, but all of us are constantly in danger of either missing this or misusing this. So at times we miss this. You know, we forget that we have been given glory from the only one that inherently has glory, God, God the Father. And we're meant to lift our eyes And we're meant to see as people who have been redeemed and rescued by Jesus that the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent has conferred upon, has bestowed upon his people the very same glory that really is the substance of their own glory. We're meant to see that. And that has a worth and a value that is infinitely beyond anything you or I could come up with on our own. You know this search in life that everybody experiences, that you experience for for worth and significance and meaning and purpose? Nothing can touch this. You've been bestowed glory from God who inherently has glory like that. So we can't miss this. Just as much as we shouldn't miss this, nor should we misuse this. Uh, This glory, and what we see from Jesus' words here, this glory is from God, and this glory is for God. So it doesn't belong to us. It doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong to me. It's given to us by God. And it's given with a specific purpose. It's given in order to reflect the greatness of who God is back to God. And it's meant to reflect that both back to God and to the world around us. So, Christian, see this. You are not just an image bearer of God. You are a glory bearer of God. You are a carrier of the very glory of God. And the question then that should characterize every decision and action and thought of our lives is what will reflect the glory that God has given me back to God? He has made me a glory bearer. What what will, in this moment, reflect the glory that God has given me back to God? That's the plan of God. We also, in Jesus' prayer, learn about the people of God. Who are the people of God? How do you become part of the people of God? Jesus here does a very at least for our modern sensibilities, a very non-politically correct thing, and he creates an us-them distinction. He says there's the world and there's the people of God. And when the Apostle John, writing his gospel, uses this phrase, the world, he's referring to uh, the people, the systems, the pursuits, anything that aligns itself and persists in opposition to the rule and reign of God. That's the world. So really then, by definition, because they're rejecting the rule and reign of God, the people of God would not be of the world. Uh, The people of God have a different heart. They have different desires. And the most fundamental difference 
between the world and the people of God is that the people of God know God. They know Him. Jesus says the world does not know God. I know God. And Jesus has made known God to His people. Verse 3 is all about knowing God. This is eternal life, that they know you. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We've seen this already in John's Gospel too, but to know God is much more than to know some true things about God. It's about a relationship. Knowing God is about a relationship with God. And really, the, the context here of this intimate conversation, this relationship between Jesus and the Father, only serves to illustrate that even more. We're given this front row seat into this relationship between the two of them, where Jesus says to God, I am in you. You are in me. And there's this mutual abiding. God the Father abiding in Jesus. Jesus abiding in God the Father. And likewise, then, Jesus says, to know God is to enter into that kind of intimate relationship with God. God's people abide in God. God abides in His people in the same way that God abides in Jesus and Jesus abides in the Father. There's different specifics, but it's the same substance. It's that kind of relationship, that kind of knowing that really creates this fundamental distinction between those who are of the world and those who are of the people of God. But we also, as we read John 17, have to be really careful not to take this to a place that Jesus doesn't take this. So John 17 has historically been used by some Christians, some groups of Christians, to justify an isolationist separation policy from the world. In other words, there's us, and there's the world, and we're not them, so let's not hang out with them. But what we see here is that Jesus loves his people and he prays for his people. And he doesn't, he says there in verse 9, so here's where people get hung up. Verse 9 says that I pray for them, I do not pray for the world. And it's true that Jesus isn't praying specifically for the world in this prayer, but we can't read that statement apart from the big picture of John's gospel and even the big picture of what Jesus is saying in this this specific passage. Because this is the same Jesus who entered into the darkness to rescue people from the darkness. God so loved the world that Jesus came. So what we won't find in John chapter 17 is a valid reason to avoid the world or to hide from it. The people of God, as it's been famously said, are not of the world, but they are in the world. We're meant to be in the world, not of it. And nor do we find here in John 17 a reason to like pull up short and simply aim for coexistence. Where we've got our track as the people of God and the world's got its track. And at least intersection as possible is preferred. And we don't have that here either. Because woven throughout this entire passage is Jesus' forward-looking, future-anticipating longing that more people would come to know God in the same way that He does, in the same way that His disciples do. And what we see actually here, Jesus prays both for those who do know God, He also prays for those who will know God. And when He utters those words, who are those people? Who are those people that don't currently know God but will know God? They're of the world. It's us. So Jesus doesn't pray for the world, but in that, he actually prays for the world. He prays for those not only who do know, but who 
will know him and know God. So that we have to see the distinction. This distinction is not at all meant to drive a wedge between the people of God and the world. It's meant to actually propel the people of God into the world, longing for this for other people, laboring for this for other people, praying for this for other people. And it means that like Jesus, following in his own example, that we can, though different from the world, love the world. We can endure the opposition to God and his people in order to be agents of that very same eternal rescue that we so desperately needed and need ourselves. So here's the question for you. Where are you in this? Where are you in this? Each of us can locate ourselves in one of these two groups mentioned by Jesus. People of God or the world. For those of you who are here who who don't um, currently believe in Jesus, you don't exactly know what to do with them, maybe you're intrigued, maybe you're not. For those of you who don't currently believe, at, at a minimum, at least see in this the heart of Jesus longing for his people and for other people to experience life in himself. He comes to give that life to his people, and then he sends his people that they might have even more people experience life in himself. And you, if you, if you haven't ever believed, you can experience that very thing by looking to Jesus, by believing in him, by putting your trust in him, that he truly has come to do that. That is how you come to know the Father in this deeply relational way. So see and believe, if that's where you are. For those of you here who, who do believe, be humbled, uh, be amazed, be grateful by, by, the, by what you've been caught up into. Be grateful at what you have been caught up into. Jesus has sent his disciples, and it's through them that we have come to experience this very same thing. And then we get to be sent by Jesus in the same way that these first disciples were, into the world to love the world. Do you see that as part of your identity? Not just something that you do as a Christian. Not just something that you're, that you're called to do and, and, and an action-oriented thing. It's part of who you are. Christians are the rescued people of God. They are also the sent people of God. Do we see that as part of our identity? And do we long for more people to experience life in Jesus through our own words, through our own lives, through what we ourselves have experienced in him? So there's the plan of God. There's the people of God. Thirdly, we see here the pleadings of God. Jesus isn't just the eternal designer. He isn't just the rescuer and the sender of his people. He's the intercessor. He's the intercessor. This prayer in John 17 is often referred to as the high priestly prayer. Because like an Israelite high priest, Jesus is pleading with God the Father on behalf of his people. He's intervening with God the Father on behalf of his people. And again, this is a really intimate glimpse into the heart of Jesus. What is he all about? What is, what's important to him? How does he pray for us, for his people? One of the ways he prays is that his people would be kept. That they would be kept. That they would be guarded. They would be protected. If you're going to live as 
the people of God in the world, you need protection. From what? What do you need protection from? Uh, you need protection from Satan. Jesus mentions that in, in verse 15. You need protection from the one who is the adversary of our souls, who would seek to blind the minds of people who don't yet believe, would seek to condemn the hearts of those who do. You need protection from the adversary of your souls. You need protection from the world, um, from these systems and from people and from pursuits that align themselves and persist in this rebellion against God. You need protection from that. And probably least popular, though we might struggle to believe this or admit this, we need protection from ourselves. That sin nature in us that though defeated by the work of Jesus still attempts to revive itself again and again in our lives. So here's the not fun at all question for you for your Sunday morning. What is it that would bring you down? Like, What is it that would take you out? And I don't just mean that in general. Like, What are the kinds of things that, that could happen to somebody that would like take them out in life? I mean personally for you, as, as, as well as you know yourself at this point, what are those sin patterns? What are those proclivities you have to shipwreck your own life that would take you out? It's when we actually personalize it like that and don't just leave it in kind of the generalities that we truly begin to see our need for Jesus to intercede for us, to plead for our protection, to keep us. It's when we drill down to that level of what would take us out. Jesus pleads for us to be kept from that. Jesus also prays that his people would be unified, that they would be one. Okay, what does he mean by that? Um, One of the resources I used this week did a great kind of survey of the, like the whole Bible's teachings on that. And, and this, is what, this is how they summarized it. It means that you have unity of mind and purpose. Common mind, common purpose. It means you have unqualified mutual love for one another. It means that you have sustained and comprehensive togetherness in mission. And all of it embodies and characterizes Jesus' own ministry in union with the Father. In other words, it's the same kind of union that the Father and the Son experience together. We're meant to experience with them and with each other. So do you already feel the cynicism creeping in from that? Like, doesn't that sound amazing, that kind of unity? But if you tried that, if you've lived life at all, the cynicism comes in quickly. And man, I was there this week. I was there this week. I read this sentence, came came across this sentence in my reading. Although individual Christians and the church in general tend to fall short of the fullness of unity that the Lord intends, dot, 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 I was like, well, do you think? Like, you know, no kidding, Sherlock. You know, like, no, like, we fall short of the fullness that God intends in this. Okay, well, thank you. You know, I've experienced that that kind of unity that's described there with maybe a small handful of people in my life particularly when you start talking about comprehensive and sustained togetherness, unqualified love. There's people I link arms with and run with. Lots of those people. Not a lot of this. And that's just on the individual level. The church in general, there's over 40,000 Christian denominations and subgroups in the world today. 40,000. So, is it obvious yet that we need Jesus to plead this for us? Because we're not getting there on our own. 
We're not getting there on our own. We need him to plead for our unity. God used an author named Gary Burge to, to put my cynicism in check a little bit this week, to offer some really practical and helpful words on, on though we absolutely must have Jesus pleading for this for us, how do we actually pursue this kind of unity? And he says this, Unity is not so much a byproduct of discussion and diplomacy as it is worship, repentance, and prayer. The degree to which we seek God together assists us to find common ground in our lives together. It's not so much a matter of diplomacy and discussion, but worship and repentance and prayer. See, sometimes our talking has to stop so that the power of the Spirit of God can take over. And that happens through the word of God. Jesus says here, I've given them your word, in verse 14. And we need that perspective. We need the perspective of the word of God. We need that to lead us into worship and repentance and prayer. Because without that reference point of God's word, we're aimless. And if we're aimless, then we're going to be hopeless to find unity with each other. We'd be like an orchestra trying to play something cohesive, but not having the same sheet music. And at that point... You know, it's not a matter of like, hey, let's just talk this out and figure out, you know, you have this music, I have this music, let's just talk out what we maybe can like overlap in. No, you've got to get the same music. You've got to get the same reference point. And as we worship and repent and pray together in light of the word of God, that is how we find this kind of unity with one another. One more thing Jesus pleads for his people. Not only that they be kept, not only that they be unified, but that they be Sanctified that they would be made holy, that they would be set apart in the truth. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth, Jesus says. And this is where we see the key that unlocks the whole thing from John chapter 17. When Jesus pleads for his people to be sanctified, he's pleading for what he takes upon himself to accomplish. Verse 19 is so central here. For their sake... I consecrate myself, I set myself apart, Jesus says, so that they also may be sanctified in truth. Here's what Jesus is saying there. He's not just the high priest interceding, pleading on our behalf. He's also the sacrifice. He's the priest and the victim. He's the priest and the sacrifice. And for our sake, he sets himself apart. He takes it upon himself to become that perfect and acceptable sacrifice so that his people can experience all of this, can be kept by God, can be uh, unified with him and with one another, both now and until the day that we're united with him fully, where he is going to be with the Father. And here's the beauty of it. If Jesus is the eternal designer, and he's the perfect sacrifice, and he's the faithful high priest now living to constantly intercede and plead the merits of his own work on our behalf to the Father, then that means that there is no piece of this that has been left untouched or unaccounted for. That Jesus is in and over and with us in all of it. From eternity past to the moment he accomplished it in his death and resurrection, pleading for us until the day we're united with him for eternity future. So men and women, bearing the glory of God, kept by him, united with him and one another. May we be sent by Jesus into the world with all confidence and courage and joy like Jesus talks about here. Because when we get to glimpse this intimate relationship between the Father and the Son, 
what we truly see is that Jesus has his people every step of the way. He's leading, he's guiding, he's walking with us and working every step of the way. And I'll close this morning with the Apostle Paul's words from Romans chapter 8. Just like for the Apostle John who wrote this gospel, just like he took great confidence and courage in Jesus as the intercessor, so too the Apostle Paul did. Drew upon the same themes and hung his life as he ran for the glory of God to the ends of the earth, hung his life on this reality of Jesus not only dying, but living to intercede. And he says this in Romans 8. What shall we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's the word of God for the people of God and for the life of the world. And pray for us. Jesus, thank you that we get to see your heart for your people and for the world. And we pray that as we get caught up into the great work that you're doing, the life that you impart to your people through your perfect life and your sacrificial death, we pray that we would be those who carry that to others. We pray we rejoice in what's been accomplished for us. We pray that especially this week as we worship, as we contemplate the cost of what you've done for us. We pray that you would just renew just an overwhelming sense of your greatness and your glory, that you did all of this, yes, out of love for us, and all in the way that glorifies God. And may we be those who reflect that back in our lives. I pray, Jesus, that we would have great comfort that you are living and standing at the right hand of God, ever living to, to plead and intercede on our behalf. You are our intercessor. And as we come to this table, we remember not only your sacrifice, but your life that, that accomplished what we could not in ours. And we remember your death, and we remember that you lived to intercede. And we pray that as we come, you would strengthen us. You are intercessor, strengthening us, keeping us. We pray this in your name. Amen.